and welcome to episode 54 of the Night Gallery podcast. My name's Chris Brown. Today we're going to be talking about Camera Obscura. It's a, a teleplay by Rod Serling based on the short story by Basil Cooper of the same name and is directed by John Batham. We branch out a bit this evening and move a few feet away from the usual and get into the area of photography. Now, this painting here had best be viewed in a dark room because it conjures up the ghostly, the ghastly, and the ghoulish. It tells the story about a very remarkable device that offers up a vision as things are and a hellish vision of what they were and shall be. Our painting is called Camera Obscura. Our story is based in a small town in England in the 1920s. Um, a place that is struggling with poverty and also still trying to come to terms with the violence of the First World War. We have a moneylender, a man called William Sharstead, who is, um, well, he's there to see an elderly client of his, a man who is, is basically, he wants the money, he, wants, he, wants, he needs to sort out the debt repayment from a gentleman called uh, Mr. Jingold. He wants the cash, but um, Shasta, well, sorry, Jingold is more interested probably in actually showing him something, showing him his antiquities. In particular, camera obscuras. These are unusual pieces where an image is projected onto a table. And you can see around town by using a series of mirrors and lights to, to basically like a periscope almost. And, and, and on the floor is illuminated exactly what's going on in the city around them. It's a lovely piece. Um, and at first, Sharstead is happy enough to, um, to, to humour him and to, to look at the pieces. But it becomes increasingly clear that there's a feeling from Jingold that he's been had he's been had on debt repayments that uh, the interest rate although legal was far far too high immorally so and there's also a growing sense as well that this is his attempt to try and persuade Sharstead not, not basically not to take everything he has as repayment um, he uses the uh, the camera obscura to show places where already Sharstead's work has damaged, well, has damaged the community around him and led people towards a rather sad and also rather, you know, possibly grisly end. Yes. The residence of Norton Thwaite. You recognise it? I recognise it. What's that got to do with me? Oh, you must know the answer to that. I believe you're responsible for destroying Mr. Thwaite. Destroying him? <laughs> That's a bit melodramatic, Mr. Gingold. I happen to hold the mortgage on that ratty little building of his, and uh, since he's unwilling to keep up the payments on his mortgage... Unwilling or unable? <laughs> the distinction eludes me, Mr. Gingold. Unwilling or unable, he has a most cavalier way of borrowing money and then not paying it back. And you, sir, have a most cavalier way of charging usurious interest. 
which in the case of a man of Mr. Thwaites' advanced years makes it almost impossible for I him to I charge the legal rate, Mr. Gingold. The legal Gingo. rate, yes, but what is legal is not always just. <laughs> I would suggest, Mr. Gingold, that you preoccupy yourself with your own financial difficulties. <laughs> I'm repossessing old man Thwaites' building since he can't meet his obligations and must suffer the consequences. The significance of this should not be lost to you. This increasingly becomes a situation where Sharstead is basically is saying, I want money. <laughs> you've, got to, you've just got to give me my cash. And is uh, starting to uh, intimidate a lot more. So what happens is Jingold goes, listen, I've got another camera obscure. It is extremely rare. In fact, there is only one in the world. Why don't you show you this? Uh, Shastad is, is a little... He doesn't not particularly interested, to be truthful. He's not that bothered, but he, he agrees to go and see it. It's in a different room, in near the back. They go in, and this is a very different camera obscura. The image is distorted, green, has an unusual otherworldly quality to it. And the images it shows are in no way the ones of just the town around them now. It looks like it's the 1890s, in fact. And there is a few buildings that have been since been destroyed, like a corn exchange. And also, there is his father's old shop. And Shastad Elder was in the same business as Junior. He was also a man that was cruel when it came to money and uh, took what he could. So thought little for the community and the damage that he was doing to it. And then, um, well, but obviously this image is impossible. It's impossible to be live now because the man is dead. Shastad looks at it for a while, sees it as a trick and decides that he's had enough. That this is just ultimately a man who's trying to guilt trip him using trickery into not taking his money and if one thing Shastad is he's not a man to be tricked he storms out insistent that he will take his cash and probably take every penny and the roof over this man's head he says to him you know I will um, he says to him good evening and um, Jingold Mitt says to him in a rather more threatening way, goodbye. A man leaves by the, the back entrance, uh, Shastad, and he, 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 what happens is he, um, it all looks a bit different. He's a bit confused, it's quieter. He reaches a point and wanders around and he sees a man and he's fixing an oil lamp rather than a, an electric light. And not only that, there doesn't seem to be any taxis around. It's very quiet. He's confused by this. But even worse, certainly for him, is that as he walks and he goes through the streets of the town, he gets lost, even though this is a place he's always lived, and ends up returning to the same place, which is in fact, apparently, the destroyed cotton exchange. 
if that wasn't bad enough for um, for him, who he meets in this town are people that he remembers from his past, but are all in fact actually dead. A grey robber who died in prison. A war profiteer who had killed himself. And then finally, his long dead dad. Every time again he tries to escape, he returns to the Cotton Exchange. It is at this point that he begs for mercy, prays and hopes that Jingold is able to free him from this nightmare that is happening around him. It's only at this point that we hear from Jingold, who's watching the scene unfold in front of him. And he says that it's all far too late for that. And now our man is stuck in the camera obscura for all eternity. Jingold! I don't belong here, I swear to you! These are my kind! These are ghouls and grave robbers, bloodsuckers and usurers! I don't belong here! Gingold! You're wrong, Mr. Sharstein. You're in your element. I'll reform! You're with your colleagues and your peers. Damned and doomed fraternity of the leech. Never mind the 300 pounds! Oh, no, Mr. Sharstein. Late for reprieve. Now you shall stumble and weep and swear along the alleys and squares and streets of your own private hill. Reform! I'll change! Jingle! Wait, can I be? I'll change! And you shall do so for all eternity. Well, I mean, that is a great and dark tale. And it's frequently one that's mentioned as a story that uh, Night Gallery fans really love. And rightly so. It's a wonderful piece. It's dark, macabre, but also a lot of fun as well. There's, for example, well, it it, it has themes that always pop up in Night Gallery as well. So it's like, uh, well, the escape route, which is the story uh, from the pilot it's uh, about Nazi sympathiser who ends up uh, trapped in a painting of horror, never to escape. Or indeed, the dear departed, that story that we had a few weeks ago, where it's not forever, but for the rest of his life, this man will be haunted by the spectre of his friend who he basically done over for his wife. Um. So it's an idea that keeps on coming up, and probably an idea in truth that comes up in the majority of Sterling's work. The idea of a man who morally does wrong and is punished for it, in uh, either, in this case, through revenge, or in another case, um, through some kind of divine provenance, where they, they get what they deserve in the natural order. In a supernatural way, in, in a lot of cases, with the Twilight Zone. Um, it is uh, a story. It is a story that was originally written by Basil Cooper. This isn't a this isn't a Rod Serling original, but it's very faithful to that story. Um, it's well, I say it's available. Um, if you want to read it, uh, you're gonna have to look for it. It was originally published in the Pan Book of Horror Stories from 1965, 
uh, I have spotted that there is a um, there is a company that's putting out hardback versions of Basil Cooper's stories, uh, but they ain't cheap. They're about thirty-five quid a pop. A pop. So that's up. That's up to you, I suppose. If, you, if you're really desperate to read it. Um. Okay. So the it, the acting and actors in it. Well, I mean, the thing is, I've said how great this story is, but there are a couple of faults. Well, not yeah, but they are faults. Right, Ross Martin who plays Gold, for example, was better known as somebody who was in uh, The Wild Wild West, the old TV show. And he is caked under so much makeup, it's unbelievable. There's, there's layers and layers of it. Uh, he's completely miscast, in truth. He can barely do a British accent. And uh, he's not old. So, you know, I'm pretty sure Hollywood is not was not short in the 19th, early 1970s of old British men who could play that role. I mean, he does a good job of what he's got. He's very subtle, but uh, he's a tad distracting. Uh, also, René Aubergeon, who plays Charstad, is, uh, is he's great. He's really good. He's very, you know, he's, he's brilliant as this, very uptight, very um, almost Teutonic, in a sense, kind of um, debt collector. He's very, you know, he's small cold eyes that kind of thing it's a horrible physique that's Teutonic but he's you know very straight down the line I think that would probably be the best way to put it unfortunately his accent is meant to be Cockney but flies all around the world <laughs> all around Europe certainly during the uh, the story's 20, well, 22 minute run um, for some reason every time that gallery decides to do a story set in Britain they uh, seem to really struggle a little bit with some of the uh, some of the nuances of our uh, of our, of our accents. Um, I'm not exactly sure why, but um, on the other hand, he is uh, he's great in a sense. He basically plays like a, a Scrooge that's uh, in his formative years almost, um, like a, a younger Scrooge. And in a sense, this is quite interesting because bear in mind this was a. Uh, Shown in well December the eighth, nineteen seventy one, so forty years ago, um, the, you know, last year. But um, it's you know, so it's shown around the Christmas time, and it does have that feel of you know the debt collector who gets his come up and so shows be is shown the errors ways. But unlike Charles Dickens's Christmas Carol, our version of Scrooge doesn't get the uh, the benefit of a. A way of reprieving himself. His lesson may be learned, but it's all a bit too late for him at this stage. And unfortunately for him, he has no way of saying he's sorry. He's uh, Jingold has t- took away his uh, his humanity and uh, left him to rot for all eternity. In truth, and that's quite nice. It's a nice kind of, you know, it's a very night gallery way of doing something that you know it's that it's um, you know you get the the, you think you know well surely if it was a far more gentle tale and and not a straight up horror he'd be he'd be saved but in this case no chance no chance at all Um, it's well I mean the story as well it has um, it has some great a great look to it a great feel this is down to uh, well the work 
of um, all of the director John Badham and also director of photography Leonard South um, they decided to work towards trying to make the uh, the show look as good as possible and uh, this segment has to be you know one of the better examples of some of the more tricksy and uh, experimental cinematography in Night Gallery working on so well I mean a lot of the time you know it's, it's hamstrung by the fact it's a TV show and you know they're trying to show monsters or other dimensions and stuff and they, they you know it, it looks you know like a, like, like a TV show a low budget trying to do that kind of stuff but on this occasion I think it works quite well there's a greenish tint to all the image and uh, when, when he's in the image of the camera obscura and uh, obviously this is a trick that's been done with uh, well it's with gold gel and green lenses and it's trying to I'm trying to pass film through a still camera Badham of the uh, of the crew said at the time a lot of these old cameramen get got a bad rap people said they were stick in the muds inflexible and they wouldn't try inventive things I had completely the opposite experience with almost any of them I worked with. In this particular case, I said to Leonard, we have to be on the Universal Backlot, on the European streets, and this guy's supposed to be wandering around in hell. He's trapped. What can we do to the look of it so it doesn't look like California sunlight? He and I discussed things and thought, well, let's put some colour filters over the lens and try to take some of the colour out of it. We can't rely on having the laboratory do it because if they don't deliver it to them, a kind of fake complete, you're never going to get it. And the actual the, the, what happened there was that it actually caused issues with post production. They, uh, according again to Badham, they stuck their, their heels into the ground about it and complained. They said NBC would never take footage that looked like this uh, because it was just you know it was all green and if you took the colour out, it would just be black and white. There would be no colour at all. So he, he and it, it gone in and they had to deliver the film and. NBC loved it, and uh, according to Badham, that uh, you know they were they were phoning up Jackler to say how wonderful all this stuff is and how innovative and, and different, and I think that caused a lot of friction with post production over the future, um, with, with Badham anyway, rather than just with anybody else. There's um, <coughs> another great scene as well where a horse looks like it's going to hit our uh, our anti-hero. Uh, horse and cart but then vanishes straight away and I think you know with more modernising this I'm pretty sure you'll probably know how this is done that they took two two screens and then you know cut the two together the two shots together you know with a locked camera so the picture the background didn't move Um. also well I mean but that apparently was like something they, to get the horse and cart that had to be something that um, you know uh, Badham had to basically beg Jack Laird for a little bit of extra cash and a little, another day to film that one thing because it would be such a great effect but uh, obviously it's a little bit more money but apparently it, was, it wasn't much at all according to Badham so this is for me a story that is scary in part particularly the idea of being trapped forever dark macabre but also has a certain you know fun I mean there's there's a lot of pleasure to be taken from these kinds of horror stories I always find. In this case, um, it's a well, it's basically the man who, 
you know what's you kind of know what's going to happen. And I think it's fair to say that there's, you know, there's a there's a deck collector, there's a guy who, who collects unusual items, and then they show you the camera obscura. You've got a fair, and that, that's inset in the past. I think you've got a fair idea where this one's going to go. But there's a lot of pleasure to be derived for that, particularly with you know a deck collector. I think um, you know in these more uh, troubling austere times that the um, economies are are struggling great, quite greatly to uh, to keep afloat. That uh, I think people are, you know there's a lot of blame going towards bankers, and I think uh, I think that you might find a few more of these kind of morality tales popping up in the next few years in truth um, and hey you know I, I don't know I don't think a lot of people would complain about that well for this uh, brief diversion I thank you now I will bid you good evening and I Mr Sharstead will bid you goodbye <laughs> Just some very quick housekeeping. Um, if you want to get hold of me, you can do at chris at thetwilightzonenetwork.com. You can go to our website, www.thetwilightzonenetwork.com. And there's links to our Facebook page and our Twitter on there. So you can be updated with whatever we're doing to the website. If there's any new stories or uh, new podcasts as and when they come. Um, you can also contact me on my personal Twitter at, at orange underscore monkey. If you go to the uh, the the website at the moment, there is an ebook at present which features uh, a couple of HP Lovecraft stories that have been adapted for Night Gallery. So you can have a little look at that if you want. It's a PDF format, so it's, you know it's free for everybody to read. There is also a story about Night Gallery season three, region one DVD, finally being released. Uh, there's a link to the we can get it on Amazon. I think it's gone up in price since I put the link up. Uh, I think it's $25 now. But uh, if you want to get them, very reasonable price. There's a lot of good entertainment in there. And obviously, complete your Night Gallery collection as well. So since I've written that piece, there's actually been a few more details put about about uh, the extras that are going to be on the, uh, the DVD. And it's good news. Uh, I think we thought we were all going to get uh, bare bones release, but uh, instead, there's actually going to be um, some a couple of commentaries from the writers of the uh, Twilight Zone. Sorry, sorry, I said Night Gallery After Hours tour. That's uh, uh, Scott Skelton and Jim Benson. Um, they're doing a track for the first story, the premiere episode of uh, season three, which is the Return of the Sorcerer. Um, they've also put together something a little bit special, kind of a, its own. Uh, their own night gallery episode it consists of short stories that are rarely seen um, Die Now Pay Later Room for One Less Witch's Feast Little Girl Lost um, obviously Witch's Feast is the uh, the story that was shown uh, when the when the, the series first ran and then was replaced with um, replaced with Satisfaction Guaranteed and that story is uh, that's complete, and it's been remastered rather than the rather dodgy YouTube version that you can see. You can currently see at the moment. Room for One Less, which is one of the jokey one-minute jobbies, which was used for the syndication, but not actually for the um, 
not actually for the original series. Also, Die Now, Pay Later, which is the same same thing, which is uh, it was lengthened for syndication, uh, but never to be seen in its original form before. Um, again, that was for the syndicated episode. And um, also, uh, Little Girl Lost, which is the last story, well, the last story from season two. This is an extended version of that, though. Um, it originally had six minutes cut out of it to fit to give the priority over to the caterpillar. Um, so this, in this case, it should be a, a really good uh, a, a way, way to see it as it was originally meant to be seen. So as you can see, very very exciting stuff. There's a link to the on our website to the Amazon uh, page, so you can uh, click on that and uh, if you wanted to uh, to pre-order. That, that that's out in on April tenth. So next week it, it's another short, and it is going to be short again because there's not a lot to talk about. It is Quoth the Raven, which is a Jack Laird comedy short. Uh, Close off the episode. Uh, it's okay, you know. They are what they are. These things they're not great. But uh, after that, there's some more really good stuff coming up again, and some interesting work. So until then. Take care. I'll speak to you soon. Goodbye.